John Furling taught for 40 years, the last 33 at the University of West Georgia, before retiring from teaching in 2004. He is the author of 14 books on early America, which include biographies of George Washington and John Adams, two on early American warfare, a history of the election of 1800, and a study on the decision to declare American independence. Several have been award winners, A Leap in the Dark, The Struggle to Create the American Republic, and Whirlwind, The American Revolution and the War that Won It, both received the Francis Tavern Award for the best book of the year on the American Revolution. Almost a Miracle was awarded the best book of 2007 by the American Revolution Roundtable of New York, and in 2015, Whirlwind was named Kirkus, a by Kirkus as one of the best six nonfiction books of that year. Dr. Furling's most recent book is Apostles of Revolution, Jefferson, Payne, Monroe, and the Struggle Against the Old Order in America and Europe, which was published just in May. And I'm told today that this is the fourth time he's spoken about it publicly. So we're in for a treat. And in addition to his many books, he has published numerous articles, some in scholarly journals and many in popular magazines, such as the Smithsonian and American History. He's appeared in documentaries on PBS, the History Channel, the Learning Channel, and has been on C-SPAN on several occasions as well. Uh, he, we're uh, pleased that he could come from the excerpts, as he calls them, from Atlanta to be with us today. So please, let's give a warm welcome to John Furling. Thank you, and uh, good morning, everyone. It's uh, my pleasure to be here today. It's always a delight to uh, come to Richmond. It's such a beautiful uh, city. And uh, you know, a special treat this time because two of the three people who are the subjects of this book spent time in Richmond. Uh, the two years that Jefferson spent here as wartime governor weren't the happiest two years of his, of his life, but they did spend a good bit of time here. Uh, Tom Paine never came to uh, Virginia, much less uh, Richmond. Uh, and at the end of the war, uh, when he was broke, which wasn't an uncommon thing for Thomas Paine, uh, he was trying to get money from different places and uh, for his service in the revolution. And uh, Pennsylvania uh, uh, was in Congress and New York uh, did provide some some uh, money and were very generous toward Payne, but uh, despite George Washington and Thomas Jefferson writing to the Georgia uh, to the Virginia legislature, uh, he didn't get a dime from uh, from Virginia. So um, you may be wondering why I chose these three individuals for this book, and the reason. I guess there were many, many different reasons. One is that sources were available. The, their, the correspondence that has survived is readily available for all, all three of them. Uh, but uh, there was something else that uh, in, intrigued me. As I look at the American Revolution, um, if you find that about 20% of the Americans did not support the revolution at all. They remained loyal to England. Uh, there were some who supported the protest against England, even the war against England, but were opposed to independence. John Dickinson, probably the best example uh, of that. There were some who uh, supported the insurgency uh, against England, uh, but didn't really want much change to occur as a result of the break uh, with the mother country. Socially and politically, they wanted America to stay pretty much as, as it had been. There were still others who supported the insurgency and wanted change, at least until change began to occur. And then they became uneasy about it. And many of them, like Alexander Hamilton, tried to build bulwarks against change. But these three, Jefferson, Payne, and Monroe, all supported the revolution. All three of them supported the war. Uh, 
And all three of them wanted significant change, radical change even, in America. So uh, the, that was the reason that I chose these three. Uh, the three uh, knew one another. Uh, they, all three of them were never together at one time, but they knew one another and they were in one another's presence at times. Jefferson may have met Payne in 1775 or 76. Both were in Philadelphia for, at the same time for about six months. Uh, they lived about two blocks apart and they were known to have frequented the same bookstore uh, in Philadelphia, but there's no record that they actually met. Jefferson came back to Philadelphia in 1783 hoping to get an appointment for a diplomatic assignment and uh, he was there for several weeks. Payne was in Philadelphia maybe 35, 40% of the time that Jefferson was there. Again, there's no record that they met, but, but it's probably likely uh, that they were in one another's presence. But we do know for a, an absolute fact that Payne showed up on Jefferson's doorstep in Paris in 1788 and uh, that they dined together some at Jefferson's uh, residence. He was the minister to France. They also dined together at least one night uh, at the Marquis de Lafayette's residence in Paris. And then when Payne came back to the United States after a 15-year absence in 1802, he came to Washington, uh, the new capital, and he was a frequent guest of Jefferson's at the president's house. Uh, Jefferson uh, met Monroe as far as we know for the first time in 1779. War was still going on. Uh, Monroe had left the Continental Army, was looking for uh, a field command maybe in a, in a Virginia unit if possible. He meets Jefferson almost certainly here in Richmond, I think, uh, and uh, he becomes, Jefferson becomes his mentor. He studies law under uh, Jefferson, and uh, they develop an extremely close relationship. I think it's debatable to some degree who Jefferson was closest to. Was it Madison or was it Monroe? It's probably Madison, I think, but he was very close to, to uh, Monroe. And Monroe, in fact, wanted to live close to Jefferson. And a bit later on in the 1780s, when Monroe was practicing law and living in Fredericksburg, he bought a house in Charlottesville and moved there. And the house was uh, located on what now are the grounds of the University of Virginia. And then a bit later, he bought uh, some additional property even closer to Monticello. And before he could build that house, he was appointed uh, by Washington to be the minister to France. And so he left instructions with Jefferson and Madison and his uncle, Joseph Jones. Uh, Jones isn't that well known today, but he was a very important figure at the time. He was a congressman and well-known lawyer and public official in Virginia. And he asked those three to pick out the site for, for his house. And I think it was probably Jones who, who did pick out the site of what is variously known as Ashlawn and Highlands. And it's close enough to Monticello that when the leaves are off in the winter, you can see Monticello from uh, Monroe's residence. Monroe met uh, Payne in 1794. That we know for an absolute fact. Monroe went to France, as I mentioned earlier, as a minister to France. He didn't know when he sailed from Baltimore that Payne was in jail. Payne had fallen uh, out on the wrong side of the French Revolution, and during the Reign of Terror, uh, Robespierre and, and the Tribunal uh, threw him into the Luxembourg prison where he languished for 10 months and very nearly died uh, during that, that time. Monroe arrived a week after Robespierre had fallen from power and himself had been guillotined, and he discovered that Payne was, 
was in prison and he pulled strings and in November of 1794, he got Payne out of the Luxembourg prison and invited Payne to come and stay with him uh, while Payne was recuperating uh, from very serious malady that he had contracted in prison. What Monroe didn't know was that when Payne came to live with somebody, he tended to stay for a long time, eight, eight months in this, this case. My wife and I had a cat wander up to the house that we named Tom Payne because <laughs> he just didn't leave. And uh, uh, Payne, uh, later on in the 1790s, um, approached a good friend of his named Nicholas Bonneville, who was a, a newspaper publisher, radical newspaper publisher in Paris, and asked if he could stay with him. Uh, and stayed for about a, a week, he said. He wound up staying for five years uh, in that case. At any rate, we know that Payne and Monroe were together uh, a good bit of the time. <clears throat> These three were, at least Jefferson and, and Payne were pretty close in ages. Payne was, was born six, uh, Payne was six years older than Jefferson, but Jefferson was 15 years older than Monroe. So Monroe really comes from a different generation than the, than the other two. Um, I think three or four weeks ago, I was driving home from swimming. I swim every morning. I was driving home from swimming and always listen to National Public Radio some uh, morning edition broadcast, and they had a story on about probability studies uh, which I didn't know existed even. Apparently, there's a scholarly journal of probability studies now. But the, the newscasters said that uh, they don't, the people who are into this don't have a particularly good record of predicting uh, whatever it is that, they're, that they think is probable. But it made me think, I wonder if any of those people had uh, made a prediction about these three, how it, it would have come out. And it also reminded me, yesterday I was reading a book on the plane coming up uh, called Why Baseball Matters, and uh, the author of the book quoted Casey Stengel as saying, uh, predictions are very difficult, especially predictions about the future. <laughs> and, and so, uh, uh, I think uh, anybody looking at these three would probably have found Jefferson a slam dunk. Uh, Jefferson comes from uh, sort of a gentrified background, has money. His father has been an is a member of the House of Burgesses in Virginia. Jefferson's guaranteed uh, a good education. So um, I think almost anybody would have said this guy's going to be uh, a success. They, they couldn't have known he would be president because all of this was long before the Constitution or before there was a presidency of the United States. But success, yes. And I think probably they might have predicted that uh, Monroe would have been somewhat successful. Maybe he wouldn't have gone as far as he did, but that he would have been uh, somewhat that he would have been successful uh, because um, he, his father, sort of like John Adams's father, in that he was a farmer, but he worked on the side doing other things to make extra money. And just as Deacon Adams used that money to pay for John's college education, there was money there for Monroe to, to be formally uh, educated, helped along by money from that uncle of his, Joseph Jones, who did not have any children uh, of his own, and who certainly, I think, probably provided money for, for Monroe's education. So pretty good likelihood that he would have amounted to something. But I don't think anybody would have predicted uh, Tom Paine's success. Payne was born in England in a little town, Thetford, England, about 50 miles northwest of uh, London. Uh, his father was a skilled craftsman, and children of skilled craftsmen tended to be, at best, skilled craftsmen themselves. Just about the time that Payne was born, Daniel Defoe, 
the writer, wrote that he looked at the different social classes that existed in England, and he said, the great live profusely, the rich live plentifully, the middle sort live well, the working trades labor hard, the farmers fare indifferently, the poor fare hard, the miserable really pinch and suffer want. And a few years ago, back in the 20th century, one of the outstanding historic British historians of that time, J.H. Plum, wrote of English society, there were few winners and a multitude of losers. Um, the chance of hunger and poverty threaded the lives of losers with desperation and anxiety. And that pretty much describes, I think, the milieu in, in which Thomas Paine uh, grew up, and so the, the odds that he was going to, to do any better than that materially or socially or be well-known um, were, were not, not very good. Well, what, what accounts for uh, the rise of all three of these, these individuals and of the, the radicalism of which I spoke earlier? One thing f that all three shared was ambition. Jefferson once said that he had a little tincture of ambition, but I think he underestimated. He was quite an ambitious uh, individual. And I don't think you can read the letters of Monroe without his ambition just leaping out at you. He was driven to, to succeed. And he just keeps pushing himself and doing what he can to, to better himself. Um, and Payne uh, also was ambitious. Payne is, um, of the three, the one that I think I can relate to uh, the most in the sense that uh, I came from a working class background. My dad was a hard hat working in a petrochemical industry. Uh, and Payne was, uh, as I said, the son of a, a craftsman and became a craftsman himself. Payne didn't know what he wanted to do. He just knew he didn't want to be a craftsman. He wanted something else. And I was kind of the same way. I, when I went to college, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I kind of found my way, I'll come back to that in a moment, kind of found my way uh, in that direction, when, in the direction that I wound up going when I was in college. So all three were, were ambitious. Well, what accounts for their radicalism? I, earlier on, I, I talked about all of these people who didn't support the revolution or didn't support uh, radical change, and here are three guys who do support radical change. So what, what separates them from the others? How did, they, how did they get there? In Jefferson's case, I think Jefferson found college, found education, first in a, a preparatory school, but then especially at the College of William and Mary, where he studied under the only uh, among others, studied under William Small, who was the only non-clergyman on the faculty at William and Mary. And Jefferson says, he fixed the destinies of my life. So Jefferson is, in, in essence, I think, saying about Small, he introduced me to things that I had never heard of before, and then I went on from there. And I think what Small introduced Jefferson too was the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment was a great intellectual movement that swept across Europe beginning in the late 17th and running through the 18th century. And the idea of the Enlightenment was to use reason, apply reason to everything that you consider, and you should consider everything. Maybe what you've been taught isn't, isn't the right thing. You should try to reason that out. And so Jefferson does apply reason to things. And among other things, he applies reason to uh, America's, colonial America's relationship with Great Britain. And he concludes, obviously, that 
the colonies would be better off if they weren't colonies, if they became independent of England. But also Jefferson, I think, felt that England, that there was a rot in England, as he put it, that um, it was a society with a great maldistribution of wealth and power. It was ruled by a small oligarchy, a monarchy, and a titled nobility. And that Jefferson was beginning by the 1760s to see signs that Virginia was going in that would be dragged in that same direction, was already being dragged in that same direction that England was. And the only way to escape that would be through independence. The change that Jefferson wanted, a change where uh, there was a, a more equal society, a more democratic uh, society, a better distribution of wealth and opportunities, uh, where people were free to pursue happiness, uh, as he famously said, that would never occur in America as long as it remained tied to England. Independence had to occur. So Jefferson, I think, through his reason, uh, uh, through his enlightenment, moves in that direction. In Paine's case, uh, and this was one of the things I was alluding to a little bit earlier, for me, as I said, college was a really transformative experience. For Payne, uh, he, he, like me, didn't know what he wanted to do, only that he didn't want to do what his father had been doing. And uh, he tries to run away from home. And he was going to, whoops, going to, uh, let me, I'm going to show these slides, by the, the, <laughs> the way, a little bit later on. Uh, you got to hold your popcorn for, for a while. Let's see. Let me back up here. I couldn't figure out how to work these things in seamlessly in, a, in my talk because I'm talking um, sort of topically, but I'll come back to these at the end and we'll, we'll go through those. At any rate, uh, Payne tried to run away from home and his father found him and dragged him back home and he re did run away from home a second time and enlisted on a privateer during what we call the French and Indian War. And then later on, he goes to London. And when he's in London, uh, he finds many clubs and uh, places where people would come and give talks. And uh, he, could, could, he would attend those. And it becomes sort of a transformative experience for, for him. At, at the time that Payne was in London, a New Yorker who happened to be there wrote of London, it was a place that provided a contemplative mind with some new matter every moment. And that's what Paine discovered. And uh, one of the places that he attend, began attending on a regular basis was a club called the Club of Honest Whigs that met at St. Paul's Coffee House every Thursday. One of the members of that club was Benjamin Franklin. And so Payne meets Franklin there, and he also is introduced to uh, a great many ideas, particularly the ideas of the English reform movement. So this is Payne's introduction to, to radicalism. And he, he has a job as a tax collector, and he's assigned to lose England down on the, uh, in, in the southern uh, section of England below London. And that was a town that had a long radical tradition going back to the Puritan Civil War 100 years uh, earlier. So Paine imbibes radicalism there. And I think that's where Paine uh, gets his initial introduction to, to radicalism. And, and eventually, he'll just out-radicalize all of the radicals. They, they wind up stopping here, and he just keeps going uh, further throughout his, his life. In Monroe's case, Monroe was an 18-year-old college student uh, in 1776. So I think the revolution is going on. It's all about Monroe 
he can't escape it. He's hearing things about the, the revolution. 1776 is a pretty important year, so he's hearing a lot of things and reading things, probably including Tom Paine's Common Sense uh, while uh, during that year. And he decides before the, the year is over that he's going to join the army and serve in the revolution. The 3rd Virginia Regiment was drilling right outside his dormitory window, so all he had to do was walk a few steps and join. And uh, before uh, the summer of 76 was over, he, he saw a little bit of action down on the Chesapeake, then um, marches to New York, and he's involved in the campaign of New York, disastrous campaign of New York in 76. He's with Washington's army that retreats across New Jersey, chased by uh, Cornwallis in the fall of 76. He's in several major battles during the Revolutionary War, including Trenton and uh, Brandywine and Germantown and Monmouth. And in the first of the major battles in which he's a part, Trenton, he was nearly killed. He was shot in the shoulder, and the ball uh, hit an artery in his shoulder. And fortunately, there was a doctor there who was able to uh, tend to him, and Monroe, of course, survived. But I, I think his uh, move toward radicalism was perhaps uh, enhanced somewhat uh, during the Valley Forge winter. Monroe spent that winter at Valley Forge, and he meets a young Frenchman who in a way was sort of very much like himself. Just as Monroe had dropped out of college to serve in the military, Pierre Duponceau had dropped out of school in France and had come over to America to soldier on behalf of the American Revolution. And Duponceau had a bit more education than Monroe. He knew more about the Enlightenment. And I think those two grew very close during that winter. They talked every day. And on days when they were unable to talk, they literally wrote letters to one another. So they were extremely close. And Duponceau, I think, sort of becomes a tutor to Monroe and helps move him uh, into, into the Enlightenment that Jefferson had discovered at the College of William and Mary, and that, that moves him down the road of, of radicalism. So uh, all three are involved in the American Revolution. Paine is probably most famous for uh, Common Sense, which was published right at the beginning of 1776, and uh, his 13 essays in the American Crisis series, the first of which appeared in December of 76. <clears throat> Those are so well known, I'm not going to say too much about them right now. If you have questions when we get to the Q&A, I'll try to answer uh, a question about, about uh, those uh, works. But what I did want to say about Payne is just a couple of things about his writing. One was that it was extremely significant. I, I think uh, the uh, common sense was the single most important work dealing with public affairs to appear uh, in the 75 years before Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin uh, came out. People read it, people heard it read. Washington had portions of it read to the men in the Continental Army. So it's an extremely important uh, book. The other thing that I wanted to mention is that Paine could have made a great deal of money off of that book. Uh, he chose to publish it, however, in a cheap edition so that uh, people who were not particularly affluent could afford to buy it uh, and read it, which was a rare thing for anybody to do at that time. Even so, he made a, made a good bit of money off of it. it. It sold fantastically, and Payne himself, he used a pound figure, not dollar figure, but I tried to convert it over 
to dollars. And in today's terms, what Payne was saying was that for a time during 1776, he could have made $50,000 a day off of common sense. Uh, he did make some money off of it, but he gave most of the money away to the Continental Army to buy clothing for the soldiers. Most famously, we think of George Washington as being sacrificial during the war, refusing to accept pay for his service. But Payne was just as sacrificial, uh, uh, giving away to the Continental Army what most of what he made off of, of common sense. And Jefferson, of course, is uh, best known during the Revolution for the Declaration of Independence. He was the, the primary author of that document. People in his lifetime tried to, to uh, disparage that notion by saying it was a work of a committee. And there was a committee of five, but Jefferson wrote it, and the other committee members made very few changes and mostly just stylistic uh, changes. So Jefferson, I think, does deserve the credit for the Declaration of Independence. One of the interesting things, though, is that no one outside of Congress knew who wrote the Declaration of Independence for more than 15 years. Washington was so interested in having his reputation enhanced and his story told that when the war ended, he hired a biographer who came to live at Mount Vernon, and Washington sat down with him and helped him smooth over some of the battles in which Washington had made mistakes in, in two wars. And Benjamin Franklin's whole life was, a, was a, an, an incident of self-promotion. But Jefferson doesn't say, I was the author of the Declaration of Independence, even in fact when he was minister to France, someone published an article in a Paris newspaper, and the article said John Dickinson was the author of the Declaration of Independence. Jefferson sat down and wrote a letter to the editor taking issue with that, but he never mailed the letter. And it's only in the 1790s when Jefferson becomes the head of a political party that the party begins to trumpet Jefferson's authorship, uh, that the nation becomes aware that, of what Jefferson had done. And the other thing about the Declaration that I wanted to mention is that some historians in the last few years have argued that Jefferson's, uh, that the Jefferson's contribution was really overblown that he didn't say anything that was new. It's not really an earth-shattering thing. All of this had been said a million times before. And Jefferson would not have disagreed with that in, in part. I mean, Jefferson himself said, I just tried to say what was being said in Congress. I, the idea wasn't to introduce anything new, but to try to sum up why people were supporting a break with England and a war uh, with England. But I think what Jefferson did, uh, particularly in that second paragraph, with the whole document, really, but especially in the second paragraph of the Declaration, is he writes something that people can read. And uh, it, it Try to think for a moment now, with the exception of constitutional amendments which originated in Congress, what else can you remember that Congress has ever produced? And quote, I mean, I don't mean that facetiously, but, but you do remember the Declaration of Independence, and you do remember that famous second paragraph where he talks about all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with uh, certain inalienable rights among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Virtually every American knows uh, that. And, and 
that has become a hallmark, a, lo a lodestar of, of America. It, it was something that workers in the 19th century looked to. It was something that African Americans, Dr. King and his I Have a Dream speech is in effect saying, we want to be cut in on what Jefferson promised in the Declaration of Independence. And women in the feminist movement looked back to the egalitarianism in the Declaration. So uh, those are the two th couple of things that I wanted to mention about Paine and, and Jefferson. Uh, and again, if you have questions, I'll try to answer those questions uh, later on. So all, th all of these served in the revolution and all faced danger in the revolution. Um, Richmond is attacked twice while, while Jefferson is governor, and he has to flee the city on both occasions. And still later in June 1781, a 70-man contingent under Benastra Tarleton rides up uh, the mountain to, to Monticello in hopes of capturing Jefferson, and he has to flee down the other side of the mountain. So he faced danger. Monroe, as a soldier in big battle, certainly faced danger. And you may not be aware of it, but Payne soldiered in the Revolutionary War. Immediately after the Declaration of Independence was signed, or, or was uh, adopted, Payne joined a voluntary company from Philadelphia with a 60-day enlistment, and they marched off to the coast of New Jersey, and Washington posted them across from Staten Island, sort of in the backwater of things, but he could bring them in if need be during the, the engagement. The 60 days came and went, he, Payne saw no action, and I think virtually everybody else in the, the group marched back to Philadelphia, but Payne didn't. Payne went up to Fort Lee in New Jersey and volunteered his services to General Nathaniel Green, who took him on as a secretary. So Payne is there in the fall of 76, and like Monroe, he is with Washington's army as it's retreating <coughs> across New Jersey. And he comes under fire during that, that time period. But at the end of the war, for all they did for the war, for the revolution, all three of them uh, are kind of at, at loose ends. Jefferson felt that his political career had been ruined by mistakes or alleged mistakes <coughs> that he made while he was the wartime governor of, um, of Virginia. And he vows at the end uh, of his term in the summer of 1781, I'm through with politics, I'll never hold a public office again. And I think he probably really meant it, and he may have adhered to that had his wife not died a year later and kind of at loose ends goes back into uh, to public life. But at the end of the war, when, when Cornwallis surrenders at Yorktown, Jefferson writes to Monroe, in fact, and he says, as an American, as a Virginian, I covet as large a share in the honor in accomplishing so great an event. But he knew he would get no honor uh, from it. Because in fact, uh, with Patrick Henry and others leading the charge, the Virginia Assembly was going to conduct an investigation of Jefferson's mistakes as governor. That would be the final nail in the coffin of his uh, political uh, aspirations. Monroe had left the military. He couldn't get the field command he wanted. He was practicing law in Fredericksburg when the news came of Cornwallis's surrender. He too thought he should should win laurels because of his service in the war, but he, he, uh, he, he knew that, that he wouldn't. And Payne was broke at the end of the war. Uh, in fact, he, was, he wrote to the president of Congress asking for money 
to help tide him over. And he said, I think I have a right to ride a horse of my own, but I cannot now even afford to hire one. He was so broke. But there was something else. Being broke was bad enough, but uh, during 1780, Payne had been a secretary to a foreign affairs committee of the Continental Congress. And while he was in that capacity, he wrote an essay and he slipped up and he included something that was really secret information that he had seen while he was secretary. And it uh, angered the French minister to the US. And so they began to debate. Old, old foes of Paine got out their daggers and they went after Paine. Uh, and Paine, in the end, just simply resigned rather than waiting for Congress to, to, to actually fire him. But during that debate, Governor Morris from uh, uh, New York, a congressman, said of Payne, he is a mere adventurer from England without fortune, without family connections. Think about that for a minute. Here we are in the American Revolution that's being fought to make all men equal. And he says many years into the revolution that here's a guy without fortune and without family connections, so he, he's a meaningless individual. Payne was so shattered. Payne had pulled himself up from, from this uh, position as a craftsman in England to become, I think, arguably next to Washington, the best known person in the United States at that point because of common sense and the American crisis and other writings. He was so shattered by what Governor Morris said that he fell into a depression. He, he, in fact, said he went back to his room and never left his room for 60 days. And he, he becomes uh, just sort of alienated toward Philadelphia and toward America for a time at any rate uh, because of, uh, of that. So pain, like the other two, is at a low ebb at the end of the, of the Revolutionary uh, War. Let me just, in about two minutes, say one last thing, then I'm going to show you these slides that I've been promising to, to show you. Uh, and that is that uh, we all probably have different trans transformative times in our lives. Jefferson at the College at William & Mary, Payne in London, whatever. But also when Jefferson went to France as the minister of France, he went through a transformative experience. And particularly, he liked to travel. He once went all the way down to Italy. And on his travels, as he goes through the countryside in France, he sees the condition that French peasants or farmers are living uh, in at the time. And Jefferson speaks of the deplorable state in which they, they live the wretched, curt, uh, wretched, accursed existence that they, they faced, like nothing he had ever seen among free people in America. And he blames it on monarchy and titled nobility, which has left wealth in very few hands uh, in France, and power in very few hands. And Jefferson comes on back to America, and when he does come back in the 1790s, he sees the opposition under Alexander Hamilton as pushing for, and I mean, rightly or wrongly, he sees Hamilton as pushing for an, an America that Jefferson is convinced will wind up as an oligarchical nation with power in, and wealth in very few hands. And when Jefferson is elected president in 1800, he calls that a second American Revolution, sometimes calls it the Revolution of 1800. 
And he's convinced, and Payne and Monroe were convinced and went to their graves convinced that they had defeated Hamilton and the arch conservatives of their day. If they could come back today, I'm not so sure uh, they would see that. The first thing they might see is that, that the most famous play on Broadway in the last few years is named Hamilton, and that might bring them up short. But I think when they saw uh, a society in which it takes $10 million to be elected a U.S. senator, uh, and upwards of $2 million to be elected to the House of Representatives, they might think that Hamilton was the winner and not themselves in this struggle. Well, let me very quickly show you uh, some, some slides. As I said, I, I couldn't figure out how to work these uh, in very seamlessly. Maybe maybe it's not going to go forward now. Let's see. Oh, there we go. Okay. Um, this is the, the Declaration of Independence, and you can see the committee uh, presenting uh, the declaration to, uh, to Congress. And this is Jefferson, tallest one of the bunch standing there. This is Washington's uh, surrendering, Washington surrendering his commission as the commander of the army, uh, and in Trumbull's painting, this is Jefferson here, and this is Monroe. They were both members of Congress in 1783. Jefferson, in fact, was the only member of Congress who was present in June of 75 when the Continental Army was created and Washington was named commander who was still in Congress. He had only come back, uh, by the way, and uh, to Congress. And he and Monroe were sharing a house together uh, in Annapolis where this, this takes place. This is a detail from, of Jefferson from Trumbull's uh, painting on the Declaration of Independence. This is Jefferson when he was Secretary of State. So this is in the 1790s. And this is a painting of Tom Paine. Uh, in the, the late 1780s, Jefferson wanted to collect uh, paintings of people who played a role in the Revolution. And he asked John Trumbull to make a painting of himself and of Paine. And this painting of Paine that was done in the late 1780s disappeared for a long time and was only found a few years ago and when it was discovered, whoever, somebody along the way had punched Tom Paine's eyes out. And so uh, that had to be restored. So it's probably more or less what the original looked like. This is a better image of Tom Paine that was painted around uh, 1790. Uh, and Paine again, uh, here he's holding one of his, his uh, works. And this pain late in life shared uh, a house for a time with an artist in New York City named John Jarvis. Uh, and um, on the day that Payne died in 1809, Jarvis, who lived just a few blocks away, came over and he made, uh, probably did a life or did a mask of pain, and then from that did this sculpture. So this pretty much what we think Payne looked like when he died at the age of 72. This is a, a detail from the famous painting of Washington crossing the Delaware uh, that was done about 100 years after the actual event. And in this famous painting, the guy who's holding the flag is supposed to be James Monroe. Well, actually, Monroe did not cross with Washington. He went across hours before and was assigned to a road leading out of uh, Trenton uh, to keep anybody from coming in or, or going out. And when he and his men were out there, they made such a racket that it woke up one of the neighbors, and the neighbor came out cursing them, waking him up at 2 in the morning. And the neighbor turned out to be a physician. 
And the men told him they were in the army. They told him basically what they were doing. He said, well, let me go back. I'll get my bag and I'll come with you. And when Payne, uh, when uh, Monroe was wounded in the shoulder, a life-threatening injury, that was the doctor that sewed up the artery and Monroe was able to survive. This is another Trumbull painting. This is of the surrender of the Hessians at Trenton. And this is Monroe uh, on the ground uh, so from his wound. And behind him is the doctor who had um, saved his life. This is young Monroe, probably painted in the 1780s when he served in the Virginia Assembly. This is a later uh, portrait of Monroe when he was governor of Virginia. So this was done when he was probably in his early 40s, uh, and a later Gilbert Stewart painting of uh, Monroe. Uh, this is the only person I really got to dislike when I was working on it. I didn't even dislike Rose Pierre as much as I disliked Governor Morris. He's the one that made that caustic comment about Payne. And later, he's Washington's minister to France, and he knows that Payne is in the Luxembourg prison, and he does nothing, absolutely nothing, to get Payne out. He leaves him there uh, to die, and he came very, very close to dying. Uh, this is a, a, a ceramic uh, sh showing the union between the United States and France allies during the war, both revolutionary countries and the first Republican countries. These are uh, some cartoons that were popular at the time uh, of pain. Pain later in life suffered from rosacea. He had very red face, and the cartoonists were always very careful to point that out when they depicted pain. Rosacea can be caused by any number of things. Stress and hard drinking are both causes, and pain uh, <laughs> fell into both of those categories. Here he is again. You can see the rosacea once again. Uh, they, they never missed a beat on that. And here he is with Joseph Priestley. You can see the rosacea again uh, with paint. Anything to, to denigrate him. And then the last slide is uh, after Payne came back to the United States, people attacked both Payne and Jefferson. Jefferson for inviting Payne to, to the president's house and dining with him. And this was a, a cartoon that shows uh, Payne, and this is Payne here. And you can see he's got ropes in his hand. He's trying to pull over a statue that represents the Constitution of the United States. And Jefferson, who is depicted as Satan in this cartoon, is, is urging him on, pull harder, go, go forward, and whatever. Uh, we don't have too much time left, but if anyone has um, a question, I'll be happy to, to try to, to answer your question. Thank you. With your grounding in revolution, your first revolution, how do you see America today? Well, I, I mean, I, I close the book by saying that I, I think if, uh, if the, these three could come back today, uh, they, they would be shocked by many of the developments, the, the maldistribution of wealth that exists, the money that has suffused uh, politics and, and whatever, and that it's conceivable since, uh, not that they would advocate necessarily a revolution, today, but that just as they advocated great change in their lifetime, they might advocate change uh, today. I don't think they would be very happy with, with what they would see. Do you believe uh, Payne's religious views had anything to do with some of the attacks that came upon him? With, with uh, what now? His views on religion. Right. Yeah, he, well, Payne, 
was a believer. He starts the age of reason by saying, I believe in God and in just one God. So he's a believer, but he did not believe in the divinity of Christ. He was like most people from the Enlightenment at that time and, re and regarded organized religion as uh, being superstitious. But I think even more than that, he and Jefferson, much more so than Monroe, who never really says much about it, um, believed that uh, the great tyranny in the world was monarchy and a titled privileged aristocracy that was in league with the church. And that though that sort of triumvirate used their authority to prevent change in society. And I think as much as anything, that, that was what drove Paine. Paine, Paine was, mother was a Quaker, and he had some connection with the Methodist church while he was, was in London. And he was, I think, certainly a, I mean, he gave away money. He helped uh, people at, at one point. Um, uh, this is, is uh, after he comes back to America in the early 19th century. He has a farm in New Rochelle, New York. And on Christmas Eve, he was entertaining guests. And a guy who was angry with Payne came up and tried to shoot Payne through the window. And the guy was, of course, arrested and charged. And Payne refused to to let them go forward with it. And he, he just didn't want to see the guy injured. Not very many people would do something like that. And, and when Payne was living in France in the 1790s, he's in a tavern where he spent a good bit of his time uh, knocking back a few. And he's, he's in an argument with a guy who was an English Englishman who had come over to, to France. And the person he was arguing with got so angry with Payne that he slugged Payne. And that was a capital offense because Paine was actually at that moment a member of the French National Convention, the French legislature. And th this Englishman could have been arrested, tried, convicted, and executed, almost certainly would have been in revolutionary France. And Paine said, no, no, uh, I I'm not going to press charges. And not only that, Paine gave him money so the guy could get out of France to go back to, to England. So he was, I think, a very compassionate, decent person. He just wasn't a Christian. Uh, here's a question up, up here, John. John Adams said the revolution was in the hearts and minds of the people before the war broke out. Would you comment on that, please? Yeah, yeah I'm, glad, I'm glad you bring that up. Uh, uh, I, I partially agree with, with Adams. I think the, the insurgency against England went on from 1765 down to 1776. That's a long time. And uh, many people were converted over to, to radicalism during that time. What I would object to about Adams' statement is that the war, I think, radicalized a great many other people. The war touched everybody. Men were, were taken away from home to serve in the militia or to serve in the Continental Army. Uh, some of those men never came home. Women were left to tend the farms or even the, the workbenches if their husband was an artisan while their husband was away and raised large uh, families on their own. People paid unbelievably heavy taxes during the Revolutionary War to support the war. Uh, some people lost spouses who went off to war, never came home. Uh, almost the same percentage of the, the military age population uh, perished in the Revolutionary War as during the, the Civil War. So it's a, it's, it's a war that touches everybody. And when something like that happens, I think people are radicalized by it. So I, I would agree with Adams down to a point, but I think after 1776, uh, other people are, are radicalized by the war. 
Hi, we have a question from a viewer watching our Facebook live stream, and they are wondering, how did the Monroe Doctrine protect democratic uprisings in South America? Gee, I, um, <laughs> I'll have to pass on that. I, I stop in 1800. <laughs> 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 so my, uh, I, the last chapter of the book is a book that deals with the lives of these three after 1800, and I try to look at what happens to them. But I, I really, I, I don't even for a moment uh, posture as an expert on either the Monroe Doctrine or on Latin American history, so I'd have to pass on that one. So if you have any other questions that predate the year 1800, John will be in the lobby signing copies of his book. And let's give him one more round of applause. Hey, thank you very much.